uh, that, as we've seen repeatedly, was written to Christians facing growing hostility for their faith. For these guys, their faith is beginning to cost them. They're facing criticism from friends and family and from wider society. And if you think about it, after a while, criticism can begin to get you down, can't it? Criticism can begin to wear you down. But of course, their problems were not just psychological. In their day, I mean, it's true to some extent today as well, but in their day, business and trade depended on your networks. They depended on who you knew and who knew you and who was willing to send work your way. And so as people began to withdraw from them and socially isolate from them, these guys are likely suffering financially. So it's not just friends that they're losing, it's also income, they're losing money. So it's not just that they're looking at their agendas and wondering, you know, why, you know, they're, look, they're not just looking at their family calendars and thinking, why is no one inviting me for dinner anymore? They're looking at their bank balances. Okay, they're, they're looking at their order books and wondering, why, where's the money gone? How am I, I going to feed the family? How, how, how are we going to get through the next month? Now, just one of those things, okay, feeling like you are left out socially or, or feeling like people have turned their backs on you or shunning you, okay, that or fearing, you know, also fearing for your reputation or, or fearing for your future and your financial security, okay, just one of those would be be enough, wouldn't it, to weigh on you, to leave you feeling anxious. But these guys are experiencing all of these things. Okay? They, together, they can be a toxic combination. And you know that from your life, probably, some of you. Which is why Peter ends this letter by highlighting three responses that we might have when life becomes hard. Firstly, you can hold on to anxiety. Secondly, you can give in to the pressure. Or thirdly, you can hope in God. And as we're going to see, only one of those will do us any good at all. Okay, so the first one then, holding on to anxiety. What not to do. Okay, look at verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Okay, now imagine that you have got a friend who is facing serious difficulties in their life. Okay, maybe they've lost their job. And maybe they are facing um, serious health problems. And maybe they are being heavily criticized for their beliefs in their workplace. And this is beginning to weigh on them. So they go and see a therapist. They go and see a counselor. And their therapist, the counselor, says to them, you know what your problem is? You're proud. Because that's what your problem is. You, you are proud. You've, you've lost your job or your health is at risk or you've lost your reputation and people are criticizing you. And that's shaken you, hasn't it? Well, you need to become more humble. Okay, what, what would you think of that? If the we'd probably say, wow, okay, I think they've missed the point. I mean, talk about a lack of compassion. I think, friend, I think you need to go and find a new therapist. 
Except here is Peter, a guy who knows all about suffering, personally, ending a letter to suffering people by telling them, humble yourselves. Why? Well, look at that word, therefore, because that tells us that Peter has already said something that explains why they should do this. And it's there in verse five. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And when you are facing some major life challenge, or maybe you've hit a brick wall in your career, or you're, you're having to put up with the snarky comments of friends on, at school, or colleagues in the office, what do you need in that moment? You, you need more of God's blessing in your life. Don't you? you need more of his grace in your life. You need his help to come to you at that time. What you really do not need is for God to join the opposition. So Peter says, humble yourself, because God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Okay, but what does humble mean? Because I don't know if you, um, uh, you know the, the book, but one of the most odious characters in Charles Dickens's books is Uriah Heep from David Copperfield. And Heep is a man famed for his humility. Oh, I'm, I'm a very humble person. I've always been humble, Master Copperfield. And his mother, Mrs. Heep, says, humble we are, humble we were, and humble we will ever be. But in reality, Uriah Heep has been using his supposed humility to try and climb the social ladder, to work his way into people's affections, into their confidence, and to deceive them and literally to rob them. That is not what Peter has got in mind here. Okay, he is not suggesting that you handle criticism by pretending that you are someone other than you are, by suddenly becoming all bashful or shy about your beliefs and hiding those behind you, hiding what you really believe, or that you respond to difficulties in life with a sort of a faux humility that is actually self-pity. Look again at verse six. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Now that is a symbol that is still used, isn't it? Not the mighty hand of God that I'm gonna talk about, but the symbol of a raised and clenched fist. That is a potent and a defiant symbol, isn't it? Whether it's socialism or black power or black lives matter, it's potent and it's defiant. But in the Old Testament, God's mighty and outstretched arm was a symbol of salvation. Deuteronomy 26, verse 6. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Okay, so while Peter is not saying pretend that you are ever so humble to avoid being attacked, hide your true self, 
He's not saying that. Neither is he saying, raise your own fist and fight back. He's saying, trust that the Lord knows how and when to deliver you. Because he's not just powerful to defend you. He is powerful to lift you up. Verse 6 again. So that at the proper time, he may exalt you. Now, when life is not going the way we want it to go, when do we, I mean, I'm going to, I'm assuming you think like me, okay, when do we, when life is not going the way we want it, when do we tend to think is the proper time for God to do something about it? You know, when is the right time for this criticism against me to stop? Or when is the right time for this difficulty to go away? Or if you're single and struggling with it, when is the right time for God to give you a partner? Or if you're feeling pressured at work for, for me to have a break and go on holiday, when is the right time for those things? Now? Possibly? Or at least when I want it, but to humble yourself under God's hand is to say, God, I trust you to change this situation when you say is the proper and good time. Except Peter doesn't actually say at the proper time. He says at the time in the kairos. And both Peter and the other New Testament writers use the time, the kairos, for the end of time, the appointed time. So when Peter says, humble yourself and leave the timing of your vindication to God, he is saying, and you know what, that may not be until eternity. That may not be until the last time. Let me ask you, can you wait that long? Can you hang on that long? I don't know if you've seen that video of the marshmallow test on kids. Do you know the one where a researcher takes children one by one into a room and the only thing in the room is a table and a single chair and on the table is a plate with a single marshmallow on the plate. And the researcher tells each child I'll come back in a few minutes, okay? And if you haven't eaten the marshmallow, I'll give you another one. You'll get two. Okay, what is that? What's that a test of? It's a test of delayed gratification, isn't it? Can you hold out long enough, knowing that something better is coming if you do? And Peter is saying that humility is trusting God and holding out for something better for him to exalt you. Yeah, I got a call a few weeks back from a friend of mine who told me that he had a colleague at work who was causing him real problems and seriously undermining him. And he didn't know what to do about it. I mean, should he go on the attack? Or should he just leave it be? Should he tell this guy, just back off? Or should he try and engage with him? And as we chatted it through, I just encouraged him to leave his battles for God to fight. Leave your reputation for God to, 
God to take care of. God often does a way better job of it than we do. He is a way better fighter of our battles than we are. And instead, I just said to him, hey, as much as you can, just try and show love and care for your colleague. And so my friend invited him out for a coffee just to try and get to know him a bit better. And two days later, that colleague, two days after they met up, that colleague, that work colleague, called him to say that he was really sorry, but they wouldn't be able to get to know one another better because, because there'd been a job offer and he was going to take that job and so he'd be resigning and he'd be moving away. And my friend just sent me a text just to say, wow, okay, it works. Okay, leaving God to fight your battles, boom, he's gone. You see, when you're facing opposition or difficulties, it can be seriously tempting to try and exalt yourself, can't it? Or to try and get other people to do it for you. Peter says humility leaves that work to God and to his timing. Now, I don't know, maybe you hear all of that and think, yeah, you know, pride's not a great problem for me. You know, I wouldn't be so crass as to say I was humble, because that would be seriously crass, wouldn't it? That would disqualify me altogether. But, you know, frankly, Martin, I'm not really a proud person. Okay, do you ever get worried about anything? Do Do you ever feel anxious about something? Does it ever bother you what people think of you? Like, have you ever thought, you know, I I couldn't really talk about Jesus in the office or at school or or wherever because they'd think I was mad? Maybe what people think of you does matter to you. Or do you worry about the future? And you're worrying or you're anxious about how this thing might work out, might turn out. Okay, those are exactly the kind of anxieties that these guys are experiencing. Verses six and seven. Humble yourselves, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Interesting, isn't it? So to be humble is to cast all our anxieties and fears and worries on God, which means that to be proud is not to do that. It's to hold on to our anxieties and our fears and our worries. Now, why is that? Okay, why is worry or anxiety a sign that actually we might be struggling with pride? I mean, isn't it the opposite? Because if I'm worried or anxious about something, aren't I saying, this problem is too big for me. I know I cannot sort this. I'm not sure I have the power to solve it. Isn't that humble rather than proud? Well, except it also, that attitude also doesn't believe that God has the power to solve this problem. Or it doesn't trust the, the goodness of God's timing. Or it doesn't trust his knowledge of the situation. And so our anxieties and our worries tell us we think God is not up to it. His power, his goodness, his foresight, his timing are suspect. That's not humility. 
That's pride. That is us standing in judgment over God. That is us thinking that we know better than God and what he should be doing. It's us thinking that ultimately my life and my happiness, really they depend on me, not on him. And actually, I can't trust him fully. He's not dependable. That's not being humble. That's being proud. You see, how would you define anxiety? Isn't it that gnawing, even choking sense, suffocating sense, that all is not well, that all is not safe, that danger is lurking, that change is happening too quickly, and the ground is giving way? Which is why Peter is working off Psalm 55 here. Psalm 55, verse 22. Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. And David wrote that. If you look at Psalm 55, David is writing this when he is being attacked, when he is being criticized. And so this is not David going, hey, live a good life, live a moral life, and all will be well with you, because it's not going well with him. He means that when everything else is shaking, God has a hold of you. And so Peter is saying, humility isn't holding on to all of your cares and worries about what others think or about the future. Humility is casting our cares upon God because we know and we trust him that he will care for us. Okay, that's the first thing not to do. Hold on to anxiety. But if that's wrong, okay, so is giving up. Second point then, giving into pressure. Okay, look at verse eight. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So Peter says, when you're up against it, it is not just your anxieties inside you that you have to reckon with, but an enemy outside. It's not just anxieties and fears within, it is an enemy without. And that enemy, he says, is the devil. Now, I don't know, maybe, I don't know all of you here, maybe you hear that and you think, man, that's a bit primitive, isn't it? Believing in a devil, believing in a personal devil, that's a bit primitive. Well, maybe, but not everything primitive is wrong, is it? I mean, breathing is primitive. Okay, I'm a personal believer in breathing. In fact, the f something that has been believed, that is a belief that is old and that has been held by the vast majority of people across multiple different centuries and multiple different cultures might just possibly be true. And if you don't believe in the devil and demons, you're going to end up demonizing something or someone, aren't you? Because you've still got to explain the reality of evil. And so if you're not a believer, if you're not yet a Christian, the existence of evil in the world is not a problem for the Christian worldview. It's a problem for the secular worldview. Because why does the existence of evil in the world bother you? I mean, isn't it just another example of the strong triumphing over the weak? The survival of the fittest? It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world out there. So why worry about evil? Why be concerned about that? 
And how can you even say there is such a thing as evil if there is no God and no moral absolutes? How are you, how are you deciding what's evil? But you know that some things are evil. So how do you explain that? Without a God and without a devil. It is why Peter says that we should not be blind to the nature of the battle we're in, when we're, particularly when we're suffering. Be sober-minded, be watchful, be alert to the real threats you face in this moment when life is hard. And the real threats you face may be different from the threats you think you are facing. You see, he says, be sober-minded. Okay, what's the opposite of being sober? Being drunk. Okay, what's one of the problems of being drunk? Is you misjudge threats and dangers. That lamppost in front of you, it isn't really there, is it? So you walk straight into it. Or it is really there, but you mistake it for your enemy. And he's wielding a weapon against you. So you try and take it out. You imagine enemies that aren't there, and you fail to see dangers that are there. Instead, Peter says, be sober-minded. Because while you shouldn't imagine enemies where there are none, you do still have an enemy. And look how Peter describes him. Your adversary. And that was a term used for your opponent in a court of law. It's the one who speaks against you. It's the one who slanders you. How does the devil do that? By whispering in your ear, look at you. You are such a failure. Nobody else, nobody struggles with the stuff you do. And no one else understands you, do they? You're, you are all alone. So while God wants to carry your burdens for you, he's encouraging you to cast them on him, the devil, your adversary, wants to load you with even more burdens. But secondly, Peter says, he prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. God wants to lift you up. Your enemy wants to take you down. So how does he try and do it? Verse nine, resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering, same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Okay, so the active and passive hostility that these guys are experiencing is the devil's roar. And that means that if they, are only, if they are only seeing their suffering in terms of the loss of their friends or their loss of financial security, they are only seeing half of it. It's not just social, it's not just financial, this is spiritual, and it is an attempt to see their faith crumble. How could God ever let this happen to you if he's supposed to love you? Or maybe there isn't a God. Maybe he doesn't exist. But even if he does exist, is your faith really worth what you are having to go through at the moment? Because, man, you've only got one life. And you're not living much of a life at the moment, are you? So maybe you should give up this Christian thing. And it is knowing that predictable line of attack that Peter says, resist him, firm in your faith. 
And as James writes, if you do that, he will flee from you. I love this quote from Hilary of Arles, 6th century uh, French bishop, Hilary the Great, who wrote, there is a world of difference between God and the devil. If you resist God, he will destroy you. But if you resist the devil, you will destroy him. Or at least he will flee from you. Okay, so how are you supposed to resist him? By standing firm in your faith, Peter says. You see, true humility is not saying, okay, true humility is not saying, oh, I'm, it's just little old me, little old Martin having to stand up against the big old devil. You know, who am I? What could I possibly do in this moment of temptation? Humility is trusting in God, not in yourself. It's trusting in his character, in his promises, and in his word that he is your dread warrior who's going to fight your battles for you. It's why Paul says that when we face an evil day, we are to take up the shield of faith, Ephesians 6, verse 16, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Imagine, I want you to imagine you're a Roman soldier. Or imagine a Roman soldier. And he's with his battalion, or whatever it was, century or whatever. And he's standing in the field of battle with the enemy on the other side, facing the enemy. And suddenly the enemy archers release a volley of flaming arrows. And the Roman soldiers, they can see these things leaving the bows and arcing over the sky until they reach their point at the top. And the soldier knows that within a second or two, those flaming arrows are going to be raining down upon them. What does that soldier do? What would you do if you were in that platoon? Does a soldier stand there going, oh man, I deserve this? Does he say, man, the enemy has a point? He does have a point. He has thousands of flaming points and they are coming right at you. Or does he say, oh man, I'm not really up to this. I should never have signed up. Now what does he do? What do he and his mates do? They lift those great rectangular Roman shields and they put them up in the air and those arrows rain down. But the attack is blunted. So Paul says, take up the shield of faith. Trust God, trust his word, trust his promises. Stand firm in your faith, Peter says. Or think of the day when the devil prowled around Jesus in the wilderness. Okay, how did Jesus resist him? By repeatedly quoting God's words back at him. Okay, it's why Paul says that in the evil day, we are to take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Because to stand firm in your faith is not to suddenly become all faux humble about the about God's word and the Bible. This is not a time to doubt the power of God's word. To stand firm in the faith means you put more trust in what God says about you and your suffering and your life and everything than what anyone else is saying. 
And while Jesus stood alone in the wilderness, we don't. Look at verse 9 again. We can resist the devil knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. I think that tells you two things. Firstly, it tells you you are not alone in suffering. Secondly, it tells you that you are not alone in your suffering. Okay, firstly, if you are a Christian, hey, if, if I'm suffering, I'm not the only one suffering, am I? You know, around the globe, we have brothers and sisters, if we're Christians, who are also suffering. Because suffering for being a Christian and to suffer as a Christian is the normal Christian life. But you're also not alone in your suffering. Okay, I know you may feel isolated, because we do when we're suffering. We feel alone in the wilderness. You are not alone. You have a worldwide family lifting up their shield of faith beside you. So stand firm in the faith, Peter says. What can make you do that? What can make you want to do that? What can make you want to humble yourself? And what can make you want to resist and stand firm in your faith? Last point, hoping in God, verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Okay, so interestingly, it is not just kids with marshmallows who have to learn to wait. We all do. Because after you have suffered a little while does not mean, hey, you've just got to hold on until Wednesday. If you hold on until Wednesday, then your suffering will be over. Okay, no, while that may be the case, what Peter is saying, while suffering may mark you as a Christian in this life, this life is short in comparison to the endless eternity of glory to come. So fix your eyes on that glory. And as you do, the God of all grace will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Now, if you read the commentators, okay, it's obvious that they have a hard time distinguishing how restoring, confirming, strengthening, and establishing you differ from one another. I mean, how do they differ from each other? And the answer is, they don't. And that is because Peter is not trying to give you four different things that God is going to do for you in your suffering. He's telling you the same thing four different ways. When you are suffering, but you trust him, he will strengthen you. And 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 when you are going through a hard time, he will make your foundation firm. And he will make it firm. And he will make it firm. And he will make it firm. You see, what Peter is not doing is giving you a self-help manual to get you through the hard times of life. He is not saying, hey, these are the four keys to the successful Christian life. These are the four keys that will help you strengthen yourself and help you become a better you. 
No, he is saying God is the God of all grace. So look what he will do for you. Because look what he's already done for you. Verse 10 again. He has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. That means if you are a Christian, regardless of what your circumstances might be saying, regardless of what your critics might be saying about you, regardless of what the devil might be whispering in your ear, regardless of what you might even be saying to yourself, God has called you and he's called you to glory. And that is, if that is what God has called you to, that is how this is going to end. And if the marathon runner knew that he just had to keep putting one foot in front of the other and he would win gold, what would he do? He'd keep putting one foot in front of the other. Except the race is not yours to win. Christ has entered the race on your behalf and he's endured the pain. And he has already won the prize for you. You've been called in Christ, Peter says. And when you see that Christ gave up his safety and his security, and he humbled himself and he did it for you, that, as that begins to dawn on you, that will begin to make you want to humble yourself under his mighty saving hand. Because he didn't just humble himself by coming, he humbled himself by suffering. And he didn't have mates on either side of him. He went into the battle and the wilderness alone. And he resisted the devil for you. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, as his hour of darkness came, he was sober-minded, and he was watchful, and he sweat drops of blood in prayer, and he did it for you. And at the cross, he took all of our sin and all of our sorrow upon himself, and it was there, Paul tells us, that he defeated our adversary and triumphed over him and made a public spectacle of him because it was there at the cross that the hold of the devil against you of sin and death and criticism and condemnation and accusation were broken and satan's lion's roar may be fierce but his teeth have been pulled it's why one of the elders around the throne in the revelation says to john weep no more Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the true lion, the root of David, has conquered. And your adversary might speak against you. Jesus never speaks against you. Whose voice are you going to listen to? Because if he is for you, who's going to condemn you? The son of God himself is rooting and interceding for you. And if he suffered for you, he is not going to let you go in your suffering. So see what he has done for you. And you'll want to humble yourself. And you want to learn to trust him and his perfect timing. And to learn to cast your anxieties upon him. 
and you'll be sober-minded and you'll resist the enemy and you'll say no to the pride and the self-pity that can so easily tempt us in times of suffering and instead you will want to stand firm in your faith. As Peter says in verse 11, to him be the dominion forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's pray.